are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we will turn our attention to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, it's on page 88 in the Pew Bibles. So I invite you to turn there with me. Leviticus is teaching a sinful people of Israel how God has provided the means for them to approach him and commune with him. After describing the five sacrifices at the beginning of the book, in chapter 9 we saw a glimpse of the joy of this great communion that God's people have with their creator through the appointed sacrifice. What a wonderful, joyous celebration it was when these sacrifices were implemented for the first time and there's great joy for all of Israel. But then right on the heels of this great celebration in chapter 10, we saw the holiness of God's tabernacle was defiled with improper worship by Nadab and Abihu, who were struck dead And God's tabernacle was defiled. And so now we enter chapters 11 through 15 that describe these cleanliness laws, these purity laws for Israel. So let us read from Leviticus chapter 11 this evening. We'll just read verses 1 through 8 and then skip down to verse 44 and read from 44 through 47, the end of the chapter. So hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. And then down to verse 44, we pick up. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the, the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You've probably heard the phrase, you are what you eat. We hear it in our context, in our culture today, and it's about health normally, right? Think twice about what you eat. You become what you eat. You are what you eat. encourages us to be healthy. Well, this phrase, can, we can trace it all the way back to Israel. It's probably, it is likely that Israelites maybe said something similar to one another. You are what you eat. But they didn't mean it in the health sense. They meant it 
in the ceremonial cleanliness sense. If what you eat is unclean, you are unclean. If what you eat is clean, you are clean. You are what you eat. This chapter 11, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is the first in five chapters of this cleanliness code. Chapters 11 through 15. It, includes, it starts here with food, a whole chapter about food. And we, of course, just read a small part of it. It goes on to next chapter, purification after childbirth. Continues on with skin diseases, mold in your house, bodily discharges, all of these different things that happen in your life that make you clean or unclean. Nadab and Abihu's defiling of the tabernacle brought the need for this cleanliness to the foreground. The question arises, how do I approach a holy God rightly without being unclean? Because they defiled God's sanctuary. Nadab and Abihu were unclean. So the question is, how do I approach God being clean? We'll see God's holiness demands complete holiness of his people. God's holiness demands complete holiness of his people. And we'll trace this through asking three questions this evening. And the first is this, why cleanliness laws? Why these cleanliness laws at all? Why five chapters here and there's more elsewhere throughout the Pentateuch? Why cleanliness laws? Well, I think we see the first beginnings of it, the seed form of it in Leviticus chapter 10. So last chapter, we touched on this last time. Verses 10 and 11. God said to Aaron after Nadab and Abihu defiled the sanctuary and were killed. God said to them, to him, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So God says there are clean things and there are unclean things. There are holy things and there are common things. I need to teach you what these things are and then you need to teach them to Israel. And this is tied into a principle earlier in chapter 10 and verse 3 where God says, the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And this principle that we saw, the nearer you are to God, the more sanctified you must be, or the same root, holified. The more holy you must be. You must be more holy as you come nearer to the Lord, as you become nearer to the temple, as you become nearer to the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. Different levels of cleanliness are required for each level of approaching God. And so these cleanliness laws are helping Israel understand the importance of being holy to approach a holy God. Now, the clean and unclean laws do not declare certain things to be sinful. It's not sinful, per se, to eat pork. But under this scheme, this system, it was unclean to eat pork. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But it's not sinful to have a bodily discharge. It's not sinful to have leprosy. These things are not sin in and of themselves, but what's happening with this whole code is it's an analogy for sin, a picture for Israel of what sin does to you. Because being unclean renders one unable to participate in corporate worship. If you're unclean, you cannot enter the tent of meeting. You cannot come near to the tabernacle. You can't bring a sacrifice and offer it to the Lord. That's what sin does. It's a grand picture of the necessity of moral 
purity and cleanliness. Let's just think a moment. What is the effect of these laws on a people who must obey them? Effect of the the food laws, the skin disease laws, the bodily discharge laws, what's the effect? One, I think it teaches them of God's holiness and the importance of obedience. Because it shows that all of life is to be offered to God in obedience. There's no part of our life that is exempt from God's authority. Every bit of from what you eat to taking care of your children, every part of your life must be done in obedience to God. What you eat is not exempt. Sexual intimacy is not exempt. Everything must be done in obedience to God. And we see this in uh, chapter 11, verse 44 that we read. God says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, make yourself holy. Therefore, and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves. So it's teaching them of God's holiness and to prepare to enter God's holy presence, you must be ceremonial, ceremonially clean, not defiled. These are exacting standards and it demands daily rigor. Cleanliness was always on one's mind. If I see a dead mouse in the corner of my house and I have to remove it, I'm going to be unclean by that act. I must always be thinking about that. Am I now clean? May I go to the temple? May I worship God? What do I need to do to purify myself? Am I eating the right thing? Am I touching the right things? Am I taking care of my body and my children's bodies in the right way? And yes, everybody would be unclean at certain times. It wasn't wrong to be unclean, but it put on your mind that now you must be purified before you can enter God's presence. It was to teach us the importance of holiness in God's presence. So that's one effect it has, is is to remind them all the time of God's holiness and our obedience. But another thing it it would do for Israel was to set them apart. God had set apart a people for themselves, and this was to make Israel different from every other nation in the world. They lived differently from anyone else. They engaged in different activities. They ate different food. They dressed different ways. Their their clothes had to be all made from one kind of material. They couldn't mix them. This set up something of a barrier. That that was a protection for God's people from the world outside of Israel. To give them a distinctive ethic, a distinctive way of living, a distinctive identity. To separate them from the unholy neighboring peoples. And this was a daily reminder over and over and over to Israel. You are not like the rest of the world. You are different. You are distinct. And that worked itself out in all of these external ceremonial aspects. You are not like the world. So why cleanliness laws? I think these are some of the reasons why, but let's think more particularly, why these animals? We're not going to go through all the other ceremonial laws. Don't worry. We're just going to look at this as a representative for the rest of this whole section. And we'll, next time we'll move to chapter 16, but let's think about these animals and we can apply some of what we're thinking here to the rest of chapters 12 through 15 as well. Why these animals? Why are some of these clean and others unclean? Just to briefly summarize, because we only read part of it, Gordon Wenham tells us what is happening here in chapter 11. He gives us the main rules that come out of it. First, cloven-hooved, cud-chewing land animals, sheep and cattle, for example, 
may be eaten. Other animals are unclean, pigs, camels, rabbits, and they may not be eaten. That's one. Two, only fishes which have fins and scales may be eaten. Two, certain named birds, probably birds of prey, may not be eaten. Four, flying insects may not be eaten, but hopping insects are edible. Five, touching a dead carcass of an unclean animal makes a person unclean. He must wash himself. Six, other swarming animals such as mice and lizards are also unclean. If they are found dead inside a vessel, the vessel becomes unclean and must be destroyed or purified. And then seven, finally, clean animals that die of natural causes become unclean, unfit to eat, and a source of pollution. There's a lot of regulations, a lot of rules set forth in this chapter. And again, this is just a summary. You can read back through and, and pull all these out in great detail. But the question that always arises when we hear this is why? What's the reason for some animals being clean and others being unclean? And you may have heard a number of different reasons. I'm going to give you four reasons that I don't think are the best reasons. I'm going to start with four what I would consider wrong reasons. The first is this. It's all arbitrary. We can't know. God picked and chose at random what is clean and what is unclean. Now, this view does emphasize God's sovereignty, and no matter what he decrees, we are to obey. No matter what his will is, we are to obey, unquestioned. And that's a strength of this view, because the, the, at the end of the day, we're to obey, no matter what he says. But when God gives us a law, when God tells us what to do, there's always a, a reason behind it. Whether it's a demonstration of his character or teaching us about redemptive history, something is going on behind it. And if we can't figure out what that is, yes, we need to obey. But I don't think at the end of the day, the arbitrary reason is the best. Second, probably have heard this, hygienic. God called unclean certain foods that are less hygienic than other foods. Clean animals are less likely to carry disease and be harmful than other animals. But if we look at the data, this really doesn't make that much sense. Why are sheep okay, but pigs are not? The, the scholarly liter literature shows that there's no real discernible health difference if things are cooked appropriately. But I think the biggest kicker for this, if it was really bad for health, then why are we allowed to eat them today? Why did the ceremonial laws go away if this was just for health reasons? I don't think this holds water, even if there are a few cases where it might make sense. A third reason is uh, with regard to neighboring religious practices. And the argument is this, things that are unclean were, were, were uh, a part of the religious practice of Israel's neighbors. And so pigs, for example, they were very famous for being a part of pagan worship. And so pigs were unclean. Israel can't go near that because of pagan worship. But while this may describe one or two examples, such as pigs, this doesn't make sense of all of this. Bulls were worshipped by the Canaanites and the Egyptians, but they were considered clean. Goats have a history of being worshipped as well, but they are clean also. So this doesn't really make sense of all of the data either. So the fourth reason, most popular reason is this. There are moral lessons we derive from the clean and unclean animals. And this was most popular in the early church. They would say that clean animals are the ones we are to imitate. So chewing the cud, like the cow, that represents for us meditating on the law of God. 
And so we are to be like the cow and meditate upon the law of God. And now the pig, the pig is a picture of the filth of iniquity. So don't be like the pig. I appreciate that there's some laughter. It is fanciful, and maybe there's a few points here that that can be made, but certainly this is not a comprehensive explanation of all of these food regulations. So what do we do with this? Why did God declare some clean and some unclean? I think the best answer is this. The clean animals represent to the ancient Israelites life and wholeness and abundance. And the unclean animals represent death and confusion and a lack. Now there's different spheres of land, sky, and sea, and each sphere has its own ideal kind. And if an animal is not ideal, it does not represent true abundant life and is thus unclean. For a herding migratory people like Israel, the best land animals were represented by the ones they knew best, the sheep and the cattle. These were their livelihoods. These were the ones they knew best of all the animals. And so these were clean. These represented the best of all the land animals. The other land animals without certain features that didn't chew the cud, that didn't have hooved feet, they were deficient in some way. Pigs do not chew the cud. And yes, they were also intimately connected with this pagan cult worship. And so maybe that's another reason why they were considered unclean because they don't demonstrate this life and wholeness and abundance. And similarly, when we think of the air, birds with feathers were clean. Some that were predators were not clean. And it's likely because they were the ones that took life from others. And so they were unclean. But generally, if a bird had feathers, it was considered clean. That is the, the representation of abundance and life for the sphere of the air and the sky. But if a bird did not, have, uh, did not have feathers, it was deficient and unclean, such as a bat. Bats were unclean, could not be eaten. And then you think of the, the water world, underwater animals without fins and scales were considered deficient. And so they are unclean. Mary Douglas, who's a scholar who helped pioneer this view early in the middle of last century, she wrote this. I think it's a good summary. In general, The underlying principle of cleanness in animals is that they shall conform fully to their class. Those species are unclean, which are imperfect members of their class, or whose class itself confounds the general scheme of the world. So those things that represent life and wholeness and abundance are clean. Those things that are deficient, that represent death and confusion and lack, are unclean. Now, this is not to say that God's creation isn't wonderful or that the diversity of creatures isn't to be admired. It absolutely is. But from the ceremonial perspective, things that are out of the box, out of the ordinary, seem to be mixing water and land categories or water and air categories are unclean. There's a confusion, a mixture of kinds represented. And they are thus unclean. This is consistent with all of the cleanliness code, which does not allow mixture in the kinds of fabric for clothing. That finds people unclean if they have skin defects. That finds unclean when when blood is outside of the body. These ceremonial laws require an exemplary purity in every area. I think this helps us understand why these animals, these animals represent life, 
Those that represent life and abundance and fullness are good and clean and to be eaten. Those that represent death are unclean and we ought not, Israel ought not have a part of. So if we have these cleanliness laws, if we understand a little bit why these animals, what do we do with this? What do we learn from this? As people now living in Ohio and 2022. A couple of things. First, the importance of holiness for approaching God. And we've touched on this. But the cleanliness codes are a reminder of the real issue at stake, and that's sin. This is a a, a dramatic picture of what sin does to you. It renders you unfit for God's presence. And so be diligent to rid yourself of it. Be diligent to prepare for God's presence. Sin is not permitted in his house of worship. And for Israel, constantly being impure and purifying yourself to worship reminded them of this reality 24-7. It never left their mind. Their sin was great. Does your sin stick with you like that? Is it always on your mind the way the cleanliness codes of Israel were always on their minds? So it shows us the importance of holiness for approaching God. Second, it shows us the greatness of Christ. The greatness of Christ. Because now these laws, these ceremonial laws have all been abrogated because they've been fulfilled in Christ. The one who is clean has been offered as a sacrifice once for all. We read in earlier from Acts chapter 10 that all foods are now clean because all these laws are pointing them to the need that they have for a Messiah, of one who can purify them because they can't ultimately purify themselves. They can't live in such a way that makes them achieve the presence of God. But the one who brings man to God has come. And the ceremonial laws are now abrogated because they have been fulfilled in Christ. As Paul writes in Ephesians, this dividing wall between the Jews and the Greeks, this wall that was erected to help Israel understand we're different from the world, this dividing wall has been destroyed. And no longer are we separated as Christians from the world in these external ceremonial matters. The gospel is not something to keep safe in a fortress, but now the gospel is to go forth to all corners of the earth. No matter what you eat, no matter how you dress. So the dividing wall is gone, and all foods are declared clean. And Christ in Mark chapter 7, when he declares all foods clean, he emphasizes now the imperative of these cleanliness laws now applies to us in a different way. Because they point us all to the holiness of God. Instead, of being externally pure, we're driven to be internally pure. We're called to live out a life that glorifies God, as we'll see in another moment. But we are required to live in a holy way, to honor our creator and rejoice in thankfulness for the salvation that is ours in Christ by faith alone. And so we see the greatness of Christ, because these laws are abrogated, because ultimately he cleanses us. We're cleansed not because we've done some great work of cleansing ourselves, making ourselves ready for God's presence, 
making ourselves good enough to receive God's salvation. No, we are cleansed by Christ. Holiness is a prerequisite for communion with God, and it's not something we can achieve. It is a deal that has been completed. It is done. It is yours in Christ. John writes in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us, that same word. We are clean. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Much more than being pure from ceremonial defilement, we are pure from moral defilement. And again, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Again, holify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Having been cleansed. It's something that's been done. The Christian has been cleansed by Christ. This cleansing is received by faith alone, not by some work of purifying yourself. It's not some some work you do to make sure you're ready to enter God's presence. No, it's done by looking to him who cleanses you with his blood, received by faith, receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. And I think we also see finally What do we learn? We learn the importance of our ongoing commitment to ongoing holiness out of gratitude for Christ's work. So we still are committed to ongoing holiness. This isn't a doesn't matter how you live your life statement. This is God has done everything. So now in gratitude, we can live a life pleasing to him. We can put to death sin. We can be conscious of our sin and think of it like Israel was was conscious of these holiness laws. We can be conscious of the sin that is in our lives and be praying and working to purge it from our lives, not to earn favor with God, but in order to live in accord with the cleansed identity we already have. I mentioned in Mark 7, where Jesus says, it's not what you put in your body that defiles you. So he says, you are what you eat does not apply to ceremonial laws any longer. He says, but what defiles you is what comes out of you. What comes out of your heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Jesus says, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These things defile us. No, they don't don't make us lose our salvation. They don't lead us away from Christ. But these are the things, instead of thinking about the external purity that Israel thought of all the time, we're to think of the internal purity. Are we living a pure life now out of a heart that's been made new by Christ? And this comes back to the reality that Israel was different from the world through all these external ceremonies. But we are different from the world today as well. Not because of external ceremonies, but because we don't look like the world in following after sin. We are called to be different from the world in all these ways that Christ listed for us. We don't pursue evil thoughts. We don't pursue sexual immorality. We don't pursue theft and murder, adultery, coveting. These things don't describe us. And we are so different from the world in these ways. 
We take one day in seven to rest from worldly employments. To do what? To worship God. We're different. We're crazy, the world will think. But we are still set apart. As Israel is set apart with these external ceremonial rituals, pointing them to the internal reality, Jesus has exposed the internal reality for us and says, what is important is living a life of holiness. We are different from the world. And we pray that the work of Christ, having purified us from sin and defilement, may that lead us to immense gratitude, this undeserved gift of grace. And may that gratitude work itself out in our lives now. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live holy lives before a holy God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, it is a tall order as we compare ourselves with your standard of perfection and holiness. And we confess again that we are sinners, that we continue to sin even though we've been made new, we've been given new life in Christ, that we, our identity is now in him, seated in the heavenly places. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength by your spirit to live in this life consistent with who we are, cleansed, purified people. May our lives reflect that. And may the world see that. And may you continue to be at work as the gospel goes forth to call a people to yourself to glorify and honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.